0: speaking of the mission of Christ on earth again you read the bold faced this is from Isaiah 61 the spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all who mourn to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. I greatly rejoice in the Lord, I exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation, and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As As a a groom groom wears a a turban, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth produces its growth, and as a garden enables what is sown to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise. To spring up before all the nations. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, in these last few moments, We've done a quick journey through the marvelous story that you are writing. From the glory, beauty, and goodness of your creation, we felt we've personally experienced the tragedy of sin, the brokenness and ruin that has come into our world because of our rebellion against you. But Lord, your marvelous grace has come to us in the incarnation of your son, Jesus. In his death and resurrection, you've made a way for us to be restored back to you. You've sent your Holy Spirit to make us alive, to be our guide, and to ensure that the work you've started can be completed. And Lord, we long for the day when all things will be made new. Some days we long for that more than others. But we long for it nevertheless. And during this Advent season, Lord, we encounter many people who want to celebrate. But the celebration is so shallow because they have yet to know the good news experientially in their own hearts and so we provide means of celebrating that are a distraction to our own sin that are a distraction to your goodness, to your holiness and to your coming judgment Lord would you be merciful to us and make us ministers of the gospel who proclaim the good news of Jesus, who ourselves embrace the good news of Jesus day to day in those moments of deep need. And as we come now to your word and open it to study it, if your spirit, open our hearts to receive, our ears to hear. May we understand And may your spirit be able to transform us more into the image of Jesus so that your glory can be on display in this world as you so long for it to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount with Matthew chapter 6. And our text today will begin... In chapter 6, verse 19. And I'm sure that there are at least a few of you uh, who have seen the numbers change. And probably most of you have not noted the change. But they've changed again. Um, I, I typically like to teach this section in one cluster. And as the week was going on, I decided to break it into two sermons. And as the week proceeded to continue, I decided to bring it back into one. And that was after the bulletin was printed. So the text is actually Matthew 6, 19 through 34. We're going to the end of the chapter. One treasure and two chests. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, Or, what shall we drink? Or, what shall we wear? Or the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself sufficient for the day is its own trouble thus ends the reading of this passage the word of God and no doubt most of you who are awake out there at least and paying attention got whacked somewhere most of you had a few questions stirred in your mind well what about this or that Jesus has a way in his teaching throughout scripture and I think particularly here in the Sermon on the Mount of kind of cutting through all the questions and the complexities that we tend to throw up around issues as a way of just kind of parting all that complexity going right down to what we call the heart of the matter pressing his finger on it And saying, you know, this is the main thing. And he does that so effectively here in this passage. With some very direct commands. They're not suggestions. They're not offered up in some kind of hazy fog of ambiguity. No, he says, do not lay up treasures on earth. Don't do it. then in the same vein he says lay up treasures in heaven do it the next direct one is do not be anxious yeah i'd love not to be right i'd love not to be anxious but filled with anxiety don't be anxious And then in a sense kind of the capstone Seek first The kingdom of God And his righteousness Make that your first Passion Your first love Your first and primary pursuit Now many people have wondered What in the world does Jesus Mean by this Don't lay up treasures on earth Lay up treasures in heaven You know, when is the last time you, driving down the streets of Harrisonburg, saw the first bank of the kingdom of heaven? Or a brokerage firm that says Eternal Assets Investment Program? How do you know where the bank is, where the treasure chest is? And Jesus describes only two. He says there's there's the earthy treasure chest and you can put your treasure in there. And then there's this heavenly treasure chest, and you can put your treasure in there. And then this rather startling line that wherever you put your treasure, your heart's going to follow it. Now, I've I probably spent a few years at least teaching this saying this, wherever your heart is, that's where you're going to put your treasure. That's not what it says. That doesn't mean that there's not some truth to that. That you fund what you love. That you send money after what you love. That's why beef farmers are still doing okay. Because some of us still love ribeyes. We send our money that way. We we channel our resources toward the things we love. We don't invest in things we don't care about. So there's clearly an aspect of truth to that. But what is also true, and Jesus makes unequivocally clear here, that is where you invest, where you channel your stuff, your heart strings are drawn to that. And he says there's only two possible places. The earth, And the heavens. One or the other. You can't have both. You can't have six treasures. And allocate them three and three. To be a balanced sort of person. Or four and two to be. uh, Super spiritual. Or six and five and one. To be really spiritual. Really heavenly minded. He says essentially you have one. Because when you try to do this. Two treasure chests thing, manage two treasure chests, one of them's going to win out. And just because you've already decided to try two treasure chests means the stuff's already won. That's your real master. Because you can only have one master, you can't have two. There are days some of us feel like we have three or more. Don't, we don't. We've got one. So there are these two treasure chests. And listen now to the qualities of these two investment opportunities. And I assume that a number of you at some point in time have been sitting in front of an investment advisor who tells you how you ought to plan for your retirement when you're old and feeble and can't work hard enough to make enough money so you got to save a little money in advance, you need to invest it carefully to be sure that there's enough there to supplement your income, Social Security might go away. You know, they have all these arguments. Then they have their ways of telling you what the risk factors are. And they like to score people, and I've got friends that do this for a a living, they like to score people according to their risk tolerance. And I was always the guy that had incredible risk tolerance. At least I thought I did. Well, imagine, he says, we've got two options for you. One of them, you can, you can put your resources into this investment account. And there's a chance that thieves are going to come in and steal it. Moths are going to eat it up, going to have holes in it, so it's going to be losing value. And it's going to corrode and rust. So there's, there's one option. And we have another investment option. The other one, thieves can't come in and steal it, guaranteed. The moths there are the happy moths. They don't eat clothes. They've been redeemed. They're just fluttering around being happy. Oh, and there's no rust. So the treasures you have are not going to corrode. They're not going to become pitted. Uh, Which investment account would you like to use? And Jesus is actually just saying it's that simple. It's that simple. One realm is subject to unauthorized consumption, subject to decay, subject to theft. The other option is immune to unauthorized consumption, is immune to decay, is immune to theft. Perfectly secured. Which option will you take? And incidentally, most of us take the first. The first. You see, we have high-risk tolerance, so we say. The first century, most of the wealthy people held their wealth, uh, not in the United Bank of the Shenandoah Valley or Wells Fargo. They held their wealth in metals and cloth. Cloth was extremely valuable especially high quality cloth special colors in clothing they held their wealth in those things hence the image and he offers this secure investment but if you're like me you say well how in the world do I get my stuff there haven't seen the bank No investment broker I've met has told me how to get it there. How in the world do I invest my assets into this kind of secure place? Does that mean I give it all to the church? Does that mean I really shouldn't have anything except the clothes on my back, the shoes on my feet, and food for tomorrow? And there are many people who have read this passage and other teachings of Jesus in that way and have said that's the only way to obey Jesus. And now it gets complicated. Or maybe it doesn't. One treasure two chests I want you to consider a few of the other things Jesus said right at the close he wraps it up and this seems to be the entire summation of what he's teaching seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness everything else food, clothing, shelter your health, your height the quantity of hair on your head everything else finds its appropriate place if the rule of Jesus is first if you make stuff your master Jesus is gone he's out and this the ESV here uses the term money you cannot serve God in money uh, the old word in the old versions is mammon it includes much more than just money it's your stuff your stuff your books, your stamp collection your coin collection grandma's dishes it's your paycheck it's the house you live in it's your car it's, it's your stuff it's the stuff you can be anxious about it's the stuff you can be worried about. Because you see, stuff, and particularly some kinds of stuff, has the potential of deeply impacting your quality of life. And the absence of certain kinds of stuff has the potential of deeply impacting the quality of your life. It makes life miserable. It makes life hard. Suffering is real when there's not enough of certain kinds of stuff. so we begin to ask the question how in the world do we find our way through this and Jesus gives us basically three tests the first test is the generosity test and Jesus basically says you can tell where your treasure is by whether or not you are generous with your stuff now you say where in the world do you read that Okay, it's clouded a bit in metaphor. Remained a mystery to me for years, honestly. And there's still some mystery to it. But verses 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Proverbs 22, verse 9. In the ESV says, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed for he shares his bread with the poor the old version, King James says he that hath a bountiful eye shall be blessed so the eye is seen as a source or a window into the heart and a person who has light that permeates their entire body that seems to be a good thing as opposed to darkness Jesus says that person is a generous person in other words stuff the stuff you have whatever that stuff is doesn't mean you have to give it away then you no longer have stuff and then somebody might have to give you stuff and Jesus said you're supposed to have enough stuff to take care of you and yourself and enough stuff to give so if everybody gives their stuff away then nobody has stuff to give eventually So, private property, ownership of stuff is a good thing. It's part of the way God created the world. But one of the tests for whether or not it's your master or it's a tool under the authority of Jesus is do you have this generous disposition with your stuff? The counterpart, the evil eye, your eye is bad, Proverbs 28 A stingy man hastens after wealth and does not know that poverty will come upon him. King James, He that hasteth to be rich hath an evil eye. And you see those two terms appearing and many scholars say that that was the language of greed, stinginess versus the language of generosity. We say a person is an open-hearted person. They said, the man's got a good eye. He's got a healthy eye. Meant he was generous. He loved people. He loved God first, trusted God for his provisions, so that with his stuff he could be the hands and feet of God in the world. And his stuff, the resources he had, were the tools by which he could bless God and serve and love his neighbor. And he was generous. He was generous. the apostle paul understands jesus teachings precisely in that way and read here from 1 timothy chapter 6 and remember that the apostle paul and the way the way i read uh, the pastoral epistles as a pastor is that here you have a man who encountered jesus personally though a bit belatedly as he says but he encountered jesus personally He received the gospel, the good news of Jesus, directly from Jesus himself as an apostle. And now as an apostle, he's traveling the world explaining the implications of Jesus' teachings. And in the pastoral epistles, he's writing specifically to pastors and saying to them, Jesus' teachings understood, taught and applied, lived out as a pastor is like this. This is how it's done. Okay, and these were his words to Timothy. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, it doesn't take a wealthy man to be content. It doesn't take a poor man to be content. It takes contentment to be content. You'll find wealthy people who are content. You'll find poor people who are content. Contentment has to do with whether or not we're trusting Whether or not we have a God who is able to provide. Whether or not we rest in God for that provision. So, if you find contentment, no matter your state in life, no matter how much stuff you have, you find contentment in life, you're a winner. You have great gain. And he goes on to unpack this, for we brought nothing into the world, even came without your shoes. That's an add-on. We cannot take anything out of the world. You can go back to the graveyard, open the cemetery, I mean, get into the cemetery, dig up the grave, the shoes are still going to be there. They're not going. Didn't take them along. Came with nothing, you're going with nothing. If in the meantime, we have food and clothing, be content doesn't mention iPads and iPods and iPhones and iMacs and Big Macs and all the other things notice the warning but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction he doesn't say those are wealthy people or they're poor people people who desire to be rich I've seen wealthy people who desire to be rich I've seen poor people who desire to be rich and this, this love of stuff this love of having stuff Paul tells the pastors warn people about it it's corruptive, corrosive and destructive you love stuff you're going to be in a heap of trouble not the least of which is, you're going to worry about it. You're going to be anxious. He goes on, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Picture of tragedy. Rooted in a love of stuff. Loving stuff. Treasure chest on earth. All the stuff packed in there. The outcome, even in this life, is problematic. A few verses later, he tells Pastor Timothy, I want you, you likely have a few wealthy people in your church. And in the early church, there were not many. The church was comprised largely of the poor, the destitute, the people with nothing. But there were some very, very wealthy people in the church, but very few. Paul says to Timothy, in regards to those people, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Because see, thieves can come in and steal, moths can eat it, rust can corrode it. But on God. Set their hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, reading just that verse, you would say the answer to that is to immediately convert all of your assets somehow give it away right so you don't have any that is susceptible to loss corrosion but he doesn't say that he says they are to do good they're to use those assets those riches they're to use their stuff to do good and That's a big word to do good, to serve, to bless, to bring prosperity and flourishing to the poor, the destitute, the broken, to create value in the world. And the entrepreneur now in me is surging. That's what godly entrepreneurs do. They go to work in the world to bring good, to transform societies, to help lift people out of poverty, to bring blessing to be rich in good works, to be generous, to be ready to share. And I want you to catch this line. In this way, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. There is a means by which you can convert stuff into eternal, secure treasure. Using the stuff you have, no matter how much you have, and I'll be honest with you. I don't think there's anybody in here that's poor, 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 poor. We've got stuff compared to the rest of the world. We have got all kinds of stuff, and that's why you have the shed in the backyard. That's why you got stuff in the attic. Got stuff. Lots of stuff. Why do you have the stuff? To what purpose do you have the stuff? If your heart is set on it, your hope is set on it. And it's not stuff that you hold because of the, it advances the good ordered by the kingdom of God. You're going to find yourself anxious about it. You're going to find yourself enslaved to it. You're going to find out that it's your master and you're going to become greedy and stingy and grabbing and grubby fingered. And if you're not generous, you're anxious, says that's an indicator where it is. It's in the treasure chest of the world. It's in the wrong place. Your stuff has the last word. Jesus doesn't have the last word. Okay, the next test is the test of anxiety or worry. There are basically two arguments in this very colorful passage. The first one was a very common one in the Jewish world. God made you, and since he made you, which is a greater thing, don't you think he can take care of you? which is a lesser thing. Would you rather try to take care of something or make something when it comes to people? Or computers? Or you name it? You see, the making of it is something much greater, takes much greater resources, capabilities, insight, than taking care of it. Now, taking care of it could be problematic sometimes. But the argument is, God made you, You think he can't take care of you? The second argument is he made all this stuff that is less than you the flowers, the birds. He made all that lesser stuff and he takes care of it, doesn't he? If he takes care of what is less than you, don't you think he would take care of what is more than that? So he argues both directions. Listen, there's no logical reason, he says, that you can't trust God to take care of you. Now, some people have read this to say, well, then I ought to become like a lily of the field. Sit out in the middle of the field, enjoy the sun, or on the beach, as the case might be, and just sit there and enjoy and say, okay, God, ready for my lunch. Okay, God, ready for a change of clothes. Nothing happens. But you see, Jesus actually says one of the reasons that this should not be a worry is because he's given you all these gifts and abilities that even the birds and the flowers don't have. You can sow. You can cultivate a crop. You can harvest a crop. You figured out ways of gathering stuff into barns. You figured out ways to put food on your shelves and in crocks and in freezers. You figured all that stuff out because you have the image of God dwelling in you And so you can contribute incredibly to this whole process, unlike the birds. A few of them try it. A few squirrels try it. They soar a few things up. But nothing on the scale of the human experience. We have the image of God. And don't you think God can care for you who have so much skill to be able to take care of yourselves, to go to work, to be creative, to come up with new ideas, to harvest, to sow, to make cloth, to sew clothes, to exchange time and resources so that I can sew and you can wear, and you're gonna grow stuff for me, and I can eat. And we have all these enterprising ideas. And you're, you're anxious. You're anxious. And yet the lesser creatures, the birds and the flowers, God takes care of them, but they don't even have those skills. He made you. What are you anxious about? Oh, the only thing might be if you're anxious, It's because you feel all your stuff is at risk. And if you constantly feel as though all your stuff is at risk, it may be because, in fact, its purpose for existence is for your security, for your sense of safety, for your self-protection, instead of for a legitimate reason in God's kingdom and in God's purposes. And sometimes the answer to that anxiety is to give it away, to have less. Sometimes. It's not the only answer. You can also repent. But sometimes God calls people, His people, to give their things away so that they learn to trust Him. He always calls us to be generous. And if you can't pass the test of generosity you can't pass the test of mastery you will whack into the test of anxiety. And when you become anxious God invites you to realize He made you, He loves you He cares for the birds and the flowers He can take care of you. Do what you can but don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Trust me. This message of Jesus is rooted in a gospel of generosity where all the resources of heaven are invested sacrificially in a broken world where people are rejecting the King, rejecting the rule of God in the world. They're invested, they're disregarded, they're ignored but they're sacrificially invested on the cross so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. So that we who are enslaved might be set free and participate someday in that new heavens and new earth. And he's made possible our ability to invest in that heavenly realm in that new Jesus ordered world even with the way we handle our stuff whether you are a wealthy person with a lot of stuff under management and you're faithfully working to create value in the world that brings blessing or whether you are relatively poor with what feels like almost no resources to leverage, scarcely enough to survive. Jesus' words to you are, cultivate, value the spirit of generosity because you're a child of a heavenly father who's generous. In conclusion, there is a way of viewing and using your stuff That seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteous order of things. It acknowledges God's ownership, acknowledges our responsibility as stewards, and it's a way of managing stuff that accumulates eternal value in a secure place. It's expressed by generosity. It's evidenced by a lack of anxiety and worry. This lack of anxiety is not rooted in a hapless indifference. It's firmly anchored on faith in God, a God who made us, a God who made us as creative creatures, a God who cares for us. And it's anchored in a faith that inspires productive work. May God nurture that in each of our hearts so that his kingdom may come, his will might be done on earth, even with our stuff. And the beautiful rule of Jesus be realized today. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, it seems at times most remarkable that we choose the less, the lesser rather than the greater. We value the lesser rather than the greater. We value stuff more than you. And so get our worlds all disordered. And we face periods of intense anxiety and worry. It's all because we're valuing the wrong things. And when we pray as you taught us to pray that your kingdom come, Lord, we're really praying that you would teach us how to order our world, including our stuff. In such a way that it achieves your good purposes, in a way that saves us from greed and stinginess, from hard heartedness, from darkness of soul. And yet we hang on to our stuff. We become greedy, discontent, stingy, and fearful. Or teach us to open our hands towards you, the giver of all good things. Extend our hands in mercy and generosity to our neighbor and love them well. We might do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.